Welcome back to South African Border Wars with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 57. As you heard last episode, from February 1982, Swapo activity had increased in the normally quiet western sector of Angola, north of Kaukoland. Remember the Red Cross flight, which had been tracked by a Swapo unit in the area at a place they called Point Zero. It was decided that this unit had to be confronted as quickly as possible, as it threatened to bring the war to an area that had been virtually untouched. Two days later, the SADF Comops unit was monitoring a Swapo unit which had headquarters close to Kahama, and that unit was ordered to meet their chief of staff from Lubango at Iona on the 22nd of February. Intelligence sources inside Angola said Plan's Defence Secretary Peter Namiemba was taking a personal interest in Point Zero. That confirmed suspicions about how important Swapo thought that this base was. Between the 21st of February and the 1st of March 1982, nine planned cargo trucks made the trip from Kahama to Iona via Ochinchu and Okukua, then returned to Lubango on the 4th of March. On that day, Swapo reported that the area cleared of all, which indicated the mission was complete. The SADF, meanwhile, was putting two and two together. That could mean only one thing and not just four. Something big was happening west of Ruakana. Sector 10 HQ was worried about these new moves by Swapo. It appeared to be establishing itself in Kaukaland and Maraland. But where was Point Zero? It was time to deploy a 10-man team from 5 Reconnaissance Regiment to investigate the situation. They prepped and then moved across the cut line at 1800 hours on the 9th of March, aiming at a point about 20 kilometers east of Iona. A tactical HQ was set up under command of Captain Jan Hochart near Marienfluss on the border, and 36 members of 3-2 Battalion were stationed there, along with two Puma helicopters and two Alouette gunships. This was the standby reaction force in case the 10-man team ran into Swapo or Fampla, or both. On the way to Iona, the Reckies mined the road to Mokamidis. It didn't take long for the mines to find their first victims. At 0300 hours on the 10th of March, six vehicles and a convoy passed by, and the lead vehicle triggered one of the mines. Tactical headquarters radioed the SA Air Force for an airstrike against the stranded convoy, but the weather was too bad and the Impalas could not take off. Three of the vehicles turned around and drove back to the north, while the remaining two continued onwards in a southerly direction. The Reckies moved towards Iona the next day, reporting the town was empty but found vehicle tracks leading south. Three Swapper soldiers were captured as they moved towards the Reckies' layup just south of the town, and shortly afterwards, about 20 Swapper soldiers walked into view. The Reckies waited until they were around 800 metres from the layup position, then called in the gunships and a 12-man reaction force. The Alouettes swept in along with the reinforcements, and during the contact, 14 enemy were killed and 6 captured. These POWs were flown back to Marienfluss, and under interrogation they disclosed that there were about 200 Swapo at the base, 10 kilometers south of Iona, at a place called the Kambena Valley. It was just across the border, west of Ruakana, north of the heart of Kaukaland. There was no time to waste. The soldiers at the Swapo base must have been aware already that the SADF had been active nearby, so things had to move fast. The SADF planned an attack for midday on the 12th of March. Captain Hochart was to command 45 members of 3-2 Battalion's Delta Company, along with three 12-man stopper groups and a 12-man mortar group armed with two 81mm mortars. That wasn't all. 
Four Alouette gunships would be available for the operation under the command of Major Neil Ellis, while five Pumas would be led by Major Paula Kruger. Another 36-man reserve force was to be held back in Marionfus. Two DC-3 Dakotas were to provide logistic support. Because this was an exploratory mission, the planners didn't give it a name. Later, it would become known as Operation Super. Kaukoland is rugged in the extreme. Its topography resembles the face of the moon. It's arid with very little vegetation or water and suffers the rigors of a desert climate, hot as Hades during the day and as cold as charity at night, as Brigadier General Dick Lord would say. The rocky, hilly terrain makes mobile warfare almost impossible if you're using mechanized units. For Swapo, it was difficult partly because of the desert conditions. There's nowhere to hide during the day, unlike Ovumberland. But it's also hilly, and bush and trees grow along the valleys and in the ravines. The Kuneni River flows through this area with the Namib Desert to the south and the Marionfluss Valley to the southeast. Up the Kuneni River to the northeast, Lada Erupa Falls, a stunningly beautiful part of the border if you're ever planning a trip. Intelligence reports filtering in suggested that Swapo was using these valleys across the cutline as routes into Kaukaland and pinpointed their base camp north of the Kuneni River at a place called Kambina Valley, along one of the ravines which intersected the river in roughly a north-south direction. The four Alouettes and four of the Pumas took off on schedule, but in a twist of irony, a thunderstorm brought heavy rain and reduced visibility over the mountains to almost zero. The assault force flew back to Marionfluss and waited until 0700 hours 30 the next day when they returned to the valley. It was hard to see anything. The Swapo base was well camouflaged, so the choppers flew back and forth for around seven minutes. Finally, Swapo's nerve broke and some of the men began running from the base below. The SADF ground troops were promptly dropped by the Pumas. First in were Delta Company and the stopper groups along with the mortar sections. Then the Alouettes swept over the Swapo base from the air. Because of the arid countryside and the fact that Swapo had broken ground, they spotted the main area. The target was contained because of the topography squeezed between the hillsides and the dry thorn trees, and if they ran, these would offer no cover, at least at first glance. The Alouette gunships' fire stopped Swapo soldiers who were running about in all directions, and the insurgents dived for cover. On board his Alouette, Ellis was in for a rough ride. I heard a loud bang towards the rear of the aircraft as an RPG rocket exploded behind me, he told Leopold Scholz later. While Captain Maranta shouted over the radio, Sam launch, six o'clock, I could see the distinctive thick whitish-gray smoke trail of a Sam 7 twirling up into the sky towards us. I immediately put on more bank to find the firing position. As he turned, as he turned through 180 degrees, a second SA-7 was launched toward the Alouettes. This time Maranta was the target and Ellis called, Sam launch, nine o'clock. But the missile was traveling at Mach 1.5, and passed the helicopters before he'd finished his sentence. The South Africans had stirred up a hornet's nest. The attackers were to realize quite swiftly that the rocky terrain offered dozens of hiding places, making up for a lack of vegetation, and this was going to be a major battle between elements of Swapu and 3-2 Battalion. The gunships poured bursts of 20mm automatic cannon fire into the base, sending the enemy scattering towards the stopper groups. But Swapo continued firing SA-7 missiles and RPG-7s towards the choppers, causing them to break off the attack for a moment. Then the South African ground troops faced stiff resistance. It was heavy going. 
The terrain was covered with hollows and rocky outcrops as well as cliff faces and small caves. This was tailor-made for an unconventional army's defence against air and ground attack and the Swapo unit there appeared both well trained and motivated to fight. The first 3-2 group under 2nd Lieutenant PJ Nell or Nella as he was called found themselves constantly under heavy fire. That was the first real contact and very little ground was made as they sought protection from some of the rocks and thorn trees. It was extremely hot now, over 35 degrees, and some of the tough 3-2 soldiers began to suffer from heat exhaustion, made worse by the fact that they had carried very little water. And Swapo outnumbered the SADF troops by 4 to 1. The attack lost its shape as the SADF went to ground. Others just rested in the blazing heat. The battle turned into a standoff. This was bloody and grinding work at times involving face-to-face fighting. At noon, Captain Hochart called for an Impala strike with napalm on the base, but that request was denied. The Alouette gunships continued flying in and letting off a burst or two, then retreating beyond small arms range. It was clear this fight was going to get nasty. The SADF was going to have to penetrate the ravines and the hollows and the outcrops one by one. The enemy was taking cover in these positions and the 20mm gunfire was managing to stop Swapo from counter-attacking, at least initially. Eventually, Nell's stopper group was picked up and then dropped in a ravine closer to the main Swapo group, but too close. They landed right in the middle of a company of Swapo. Between 50 to 100 men were nearby, and they opened up on the South Africans. Another stopper group commanded by Sergeant Peter Williams came under fire nearby as they jumped from their pumas. SA Air Force Commander Major Ellis ordered a gunship piloted by Captain Angela Maranta to cover Sergeant Williams from the air while he continued circling the base, coordinating the air support. He was also firing on Swapo close to Nell. The volume of rounds passing back and forth was momentous. 200 Swapo were letting rip with RPGs, machine guns, SA-7 missiles and AK-47s. The Alouettes were shuddering as the 20mm fired and the 3-2 soldiers were popping off rounds and lobbing a grenade here and there while the mortars coughed up their 81mm presence. It took Nell's group three hours to fight their way across a ravine, then they halted and radioed Hochart. He could see Nell and was on a hill about 200 metres away. Then Nell's men were charged by Swapo on their left flank. As he swung his defences towards this threat, more Swapo attacked from his right flank, trying to cut off the section from the rest of 3-2. They were in real danger of being overrun. At this moment, a fight-or-flight principle kicked in, and Nell was all fight. He charged Swapo along with two other men, but all three were shot and killed almost immediately. Sergeant Victor Dracula took over command of Nell's stick. Things were desperate. Dracula knew there were about five enemy on his left and about twelve on his right. They were at close quarters. Any slight movement could be their last on both sides. The sergeant searched for the radio to call for gunship support only to find it lying alongside the prone body of 2nd Lieutenant Nell 40 metres away, in the open, and in direct line of fire. He took stock. They would run out of ammunition before Swapo and before the rest of Delta Company came to his aid. It was now that he and rifleman Bornano Domingo tried to crawl to the radio, but the fire was murderous and they both withdrew after two attempts. But their third attempt was successful. Swapo was also running low on ammunition and Domingo pulled both Nell's body and the radio to safety behind rocks. The gunships were called in but could do nothing as the South Africans and Swapo were lying so close to each other 
and the enemy continued peppering the choppers as they appeared. The battle wore on through the day with neither side giving an inch. Then Sergeant P.T. Stewart was shot and killed, followed by Corporal J. Joel. By late afternoon, Swamper had climbed the hill where the mortar group lay, and they began to engage in a hand-to-hand fight. It was 3 p.m., and only a few shots then continued to ring out over the desert valley. Most of 3-2's men had run out of ammunition, and they had taken AK-47s from dead Swapo lying around the valley to use these, but even those were running on empty. Seven hours of hard and unrelenting fighting left both sides exhausted both physically and mentally. Then the sun began to set, and as darkness descended, the South Africans were fervently hoping that Swapo would not launch a nighttime counter-attack. Swapo could rely on reinforcements to the north, but would these men advance overnight? Three two-battalion sections remained in the valley as Hochart flew back to HQ at Marienfluss to report by radio to Oshikati. He had tried to avoid the call. For some reason, the top brass demanded a first-person report, which seemed to make no sense because he was needed at Cambino. Back in the dark ravine, Lieutenant Duplessis took over and regrouped his men, then arranged security patrols for the night. A few hours later, in the pitch dark, half a dozen Swapo walked into their defensive position, but desultory fire drove them off. The next day, 24 more men were flown in as reinforcements, and to assist because it appeared that the surviving Swapo soldiers had disappeared northwards. It was time to mop up. They began with the Cambino base, where one Swapo soldier was found and shot after a short struggle, while a second surrendered along with a pile of documents. As the intelligence staff poured over these, they found that 200 Swapo had been based at Cambino. They were part of a new mechanized Swapo unit who had originally come from Lubango. Their task had been to establish supply caches, following which the main Swapo units would have moved into the Kaukaland, turning it into a new battlefield and spreading the SADF even thinner on the ground. The prisoners told intelligence officers that all Swapo at Cambino were from the July 1981 intake, while a group of 51 long-serving Swapo were stationed further south, closer to the Kaneni River. One of the prisoners said another group of 200 from Lubongo was due to join them soon, while a boat big enough to carry 18 men was stationed on the fast-flowing Kuneni upstream. The battle at Cambino had been hard fought. 197 Swapo were dead, 7 captured, 3 South Africans were killed, 5 were wounded. Mopping up the base took a whole day. Among the equipment captured or destroyed included 7 RPG-7 launchers with more than 1,000 rockets, 648 SKS rifle grenades, 8,000 TM-57 and 1,100 TMA-3 anti-tank mines, more than 1,500 F-1 hand grenades, 22 crates of RG-3 grenades, 463 anti-personnel mines, 4 SA-7 missiles, 1,460mm and 82mm mortar bombs, 76 AK-47 rifles, and 20 crates of ammunition. There were also 27 B-10 anti-tank recoilless gun rockets, and just to complete this incredible inventory, nearly 40 kilograms of plastic explosive. There was also nearly 6,000 kilograms of maize meal, 54 boxes of soup, and 4,000 cans of meat, which were taken back to Marienfluss, but 1,000 kilograms more food was burned. As 3-2 Battalion counted the cost, there was no time to sit on their hands. Two days after the battle, Captain Hochard was given a new mission, 
to clear the area south of Iona and locate Swapo. This would take three weeks, and his specific target was to destroy the 50-man base supposedly south of Iona, as well as locate and destroy the boat on the Kaneni. Delta Company provided the 126 men for this project under the command of Lieutenant Duplessis, joined by a 12-man mortar group, two Alouette gunships, two Pumas, a Bosbrook light spotter plane and a Dakota for supply. They duly swept the area around Ayonde, but no boat was found, nor any Swapo bases. Eventually, the exhausted troops made it back to Buffalo three weeks later, and they received a hero's welcome. The desperate fight at Cambino had been 3-2 Battalion's biggest and most successful battle to date, but everyone on the ground also gave credit to the Air Force's Major Ellis, who'd flown repeatedly into the chaos of battle despite being peppered by SA-7 missiles, machine guns, and AK-47 ground fire, along with RPGs. Swapo would never use Cambino again. Captain Ellis and Sergeant Stephen Kutsir were awarded the honorous crooks, along with 2nd Lieutenant Nella Nell, Sergeant Victor Dracula, and Rifleman Bernardo Domingos. And for the first time in 3-2's history, the politicians publicly acknowledged their existence because Captain Hohart received personal thanks from P.W. Butter. While the politicians did their normal pomp and ceremony, strutting about looking important, the attempt by Swapo to expand the area of operations meant they still held the initiative. In military terms, the SADF may have defeated them in the sector, but the planners back and forth Trekker Huchta and Ashakati were worried. Authority was then granted for Mirage 3 and Canberra photographic aircraft to cross into Angola again. Pretoria wanted to make sure that the area north of the Kaukaland was indeed clear of Swapu. The Canberras were going to take pictures to update the existing maps of southern Angola, while the Mirage 3 RZs were picking up tactical intelligence by pinpointing specific areas for more detailed coverage. On the 25th of March 1982, nine F-1AZs arrived at Ondangwa for Operation Ritstok III. These flying missions were to take two days, but of course it's not that simple in rainy season. As I've explained, the climate in western southern Africa is divided into a predominantly long dry season and four months of what are known as big rains. When the big rains sweep in, flying is almost impossible. These huge tropical cumulonimbus clouds would rip a plane to pieces. So the intel gathering and photo-taking aircraft flew between the storms, eventually taking 12 days before they were back in Hootspray. The MiG pilots had stayed away, and the new data and photographs would be illuminating. Back in Ovomberland, things were heating up in more ways than one. At the beginning of April, Swapo escalated its activities to full guerrilla warfare, after indulging in intimidation and activation tactics through January to March. Nine heavily armed groups of planned special volcano unit, as they were known, were heading south for a very special project. These were men and some women trained in Eastern Europe, and some had been dormant inside Kaukaland, waiting for the mobilization order. It came in early April, and now they headed south from the western fringe of the Kaukaland, while others moved from Avambaland and Kavango. They split up and headed either side of Itosha Pan southwards towards the mainly white Tsumeb farming areas. But two of the western units were tracked down and destroyed, and two more heading east of Itosha Pan were blocked and turned back. Two others moving east of the Pan were also wiped out when they reached the Mangeti block north of the farming area. But three sticks of planned fighters managed to break through the defensive cordon and were going to sow havoc in a six-week rampage in which they ambushed their pursuers, 
mined the roads, killed civilians and sabotaged infrastructure. We're going to hear a lot more about what happened next in episode 58. Please rate the podcast on iTunes. It helps elevate the series. And if you have any comments, head over to my website, abwarpodcast.com. There's a link to send emails if you want to chat. Or you can direct message me on Twitter, at Des Latham. Until next, goodbye. Thank you.